Arctic exceptionalism, they called it. This was the cosy idea that the nations of the High North, whatever else they might disagree upon, could usually get together over issues concerning the unique and vital environment they bordered. This changed along with so much else in February 2022, when Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The security and defence architecture of the Arctic was swiftly rearranged. Before Russia attacked Ukraine, of the Arctic Council's eight members, five were members of NATO. As a consequence of Russia's absurd rampage, it is now six, with a seventh imminent. Russia, if you'll excuse the inevitable pun, has been frozen out. As we discovered at the recent Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, where this episode was recorded, the Freudeur is mutual. Scientists, soldiers, politicians and diplomats alike told us that even their informal, friendly contacts with Russia had all but ended. Does Russia now need to be regarded as a military threat to the Arctic? Is there any hope of engaging constructively with Russia again someday? And how should the other nations of the High North adjust in the meantime? This is The Foreign Desk. In general, there is now a realization that the peaceful sort of Arctic is not necessarily completely off the table, but it is not necessarily the belief that the Russians look at it like that anymore, and therefore we cannot afford not to do something about it. The risk of there being some form of flash up here in the Arctic, I think, is quite significant. And you can't foresee these. No one foresaw the tragic events that are occurring in Palestine as we speak. And there could easily be some form of appalling event up here in the Arctic, one kind or another. So we must not be complacent. We must keep our alertness. We must absolutely alert to the risks that are here. It is crucially important that one maintains a wider picture of the circumpolar Arctic, because it's not only about military security. The climate change already is a clear and present danger for the region, for Europe, and for the whole world. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. If Russia's invasion of Ukraine hasn't quite caused a new Iron Curtain to descend across Europe, could it be gestating a new, very cold war in the Arctic? Our first guest is the Royal Netherlands Navy Admiral Rob Bauer, current chair of the military committee of NATO. I began by asking Admiral Bauer how relations had been between NATO and Russia on Arctic issues prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February last year. I would say that the relationships between Russia and NATO cooled off considerably after the annexation of Crimea mm. in 2014. And basically what happened was that on the political level, there were no meetings anymore. There was no NATO-Russia council, for example, for many, many years. So I would be surprised if NATO talked about Arctic things with Russia for a long time. In those years between uh, 2014 and, let's say, 2022, 2021, for example, there was communication on the highest military level between Russia and NATO. Once a year, there were like talks between the CMC and the Russian chief of defense. And that has changed to not having talks anymore. And basically, the Arctic Council was the forum where all these discussions took place. And as I understood, the Arctic Council was not having meetings after the invasion in Ukraine, and then only recently sort of restarted again. 
Do you think, though, that the defence of the Arctic needs to be rethought in light of Russia's attack upon Ukraine? I mean, obviously, that seems to be happening kind of naturally, organically, in that Finland has joined NATO, Sweden presumably will. But do you think the region does need to become better defended than it presently is? We had plans for the Arctic. We will have to change plans for the Arctic because of the accession of Finland and later Sweden, because it is more geography you have to defend, more territory. So in that sense, it will change. If the Russians can operate more freely in the Arctic as a result of the melting and opening of the northern sea route, then their ability to operate more freely in the Arctic becomes possible and therefore they can become a higher threat for us in the Arctic. So that is the sort of logic. It's not that we necessarily do more per se, but we have now a better opportunity and ability to operate in the Arctic because of Finland and soon to be Sweden with Norway. And we have now set up this command, the Joint Force Command Norfolk, since 2017 they started and now they will become more prominent in the sense that they are becoming part of the NATO command structure and therefore it will be manned with more people and that allows them to basically focus more on all the aspects of their area including the Arctic. Does NATO presently do you think have the specifically naval capacity to handle these new obligations? Do navies need much more spent on them? Does different kind of equipment need to be prioritized? Yeah, so you see in the investment programs of nations that they pay more attention to the Arctic, nations like Norway, Denmark, United States. I think that in general there is now a realization that the peaceful sort of Arctic the demilitarized Arctic, it's not necessarily completely off the table, but it is not necessarily the belief that the Russians look at it like that anymore, and therefore we cannot afford not to do something about it. So because we see the investments in bases, air bases, in support infrastructure in the Arctic by the Russians, that means they have an intent to use it more heavily and therefore we have to look at what it means for us. So I think it is, again, a reaction to their behavior that forces us to look into this more. And as a result, we will see a number of investments in ships and aircraft and land capabilities to be able to operate in that climate. That will all take time, of course. And how far, if at all, behind where Russia is in terms of Arctic capacity is NATO? Because Russia obviously has operated in that part of the world, well, basically forever. And its its defence forces have always kind of prioritised that part of the world. They attach real prestige to it. That is where they put a lot of their best units and their best officers and their best equipment. So we have been able to operate in our high north, which is basically around the corner of Norway. So that is in the inventory. What we are talking about now is if you want to operate more to the east, basically, and deeper into the Arctic, if that is the case, then you need other capabilities. And if the Russians are starting to operate more frequently and with more capacity from Arctic bases with their aircraft, for example, then you need to be able to respond to that. So it is not necessarily 
that everything is a fight in the Arctic, but if they start to operate from the Arctic, then we need to be able to respond to those aircraft in northern Norway, from Iceland if necessary, from whatever we see as necessary. And that is the further development of those plans on the tactical levels that is basically looking at how are we able to defend and deter against the Russian threat in this specific region. And that's what Joint Force Command Norfolk increasingly is able to do. And we will see more exercises in this region with, of course, first the capabilities we have, Mm. and then in the future with the new capabilities that will come. Are there specific sorts of Russian threats in the Arctic being discussed or planned for? What kind of threats could Russia manifest in the Arctic? Well, I mean, they have already nuclear submarines. They have considerable air force units in the north. They have other maritime units like frigates. They have missile systems set up in the Arctic region, in the Kola Peninsula. So there's already a lot of military capabilities. They use the uh, Arctic region for testing of weapon systems, of hypersonic missiles, of the nuclear torpedo that they're developing. So that is the sort of thing that is happening already. And part of it, we will be able to counter with what we have. It's not that we start from scratch when we talk about these regional plans. We have forces. We see, for example a considerable increase in the fifth-generation aircraft in the north of Europe, which is the F-35s, for example, which are being bought by Finland, by Norway, by Denmark, by uh, Netherlands, by the UK. So the ability to operate with fifth-gen aircraft in the north as well will increase. And that's good news. I mean, so in many ways, there's very good developments already. But of course, what I was talking about is further investments in more Arctic-capable assets. Is there any, I guess, debate, dispute, argument within NATO about the desirability of militarizing the Arctic, the high north? Are there different views among the NATO members of of how desirable that is? You spoke earlier that historically this has always been a relatively low-tension neighborhood and, and they've kind of prided themselves on that. Defending yourself is something else than militarizing the region. But if someone else militarizes the region, then I don't think in the longer run you can afford not to respond to that. That's what we're doing. We're responding to what we see the Russians doing. That was Admiral Rob Bow speaking to us at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. One Arctic country which has abruptly rethought its views of Russia is Finland, which became a member of NATO in April. Our next guest is Pateri Vurimaki, Finland's ambassador for Arctic affairs and formerly responsible for Antarctic affairs as well. I began by asking Ambassador Vurimaki whether he has noticed a difference in the dynamics of governance in the Arctic and the Antarctic. In terms of governance, they are completely different. The Antarctic is governed by a convention, the Antarctic Treaty, whereas the circumpolar Arctic region is at the core of that governance are the eight Arctic states who come together then in the Arctic Council. There is a common misconception that the Arctic region is somehow ungoverned wilderness, which is the opposite from truth. It's actually very well governed. It's either the 
sea or land areas of eight sovereign states and then complemented by provisions of international law, the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, is not a wilderness. It's a well-governed space. But within that well-governed space of the Arctic, have you noticed the dynamic shifting in the last year due to events a bit further south, specifically in Ukraine? Because obviously Finland has joined NATO, Sweden is about to join NATO, and the Arctic is now obviously, aside from Russia, largely a NATO protectorate. Has that changed anything or is the dynamic still much the same as it was? I mean, the atrocities committed by the Russian Federation in Ukraine were such that obviously they had an impact also on on Arctic cooperation. But there are still eight member states in the Arctic Council. The Russian Federation Mm. still is a full member in the Arctic Council and we've been managed to take the work forward. But it it has the unpredictability of the situation, of course, is a cause for concern. And we need to be prepared, resilient, vigilant, and follow the situation very, very closely. But in addition to the military security, it is crucially important that one maintains a wider picture of the circumpolar Arctic, because it's not only about military security, The climate change already is a clear and present danger for the region, for Europe, and for the whole world. And we will have immense, huge problems if we can't control and mitigate the climate change taking place in the Arctic. But can steps or helpful, useful steps be taken within the Arctic in that respect without involving Russia and without including Russia? Because obviously, whether Russia wants to admit it or acknowledge it or not, this is a problem for them as well. It's a huge problem for Russia. I mean, I just take one example is thawing of the permafrost. And much of the Russian energy infrastructure, much of their communities in the Arctic region, they are on top of a permafrost which is thawing. And it's the same situation in parts of Alaska and northern Canada. And therefore, urgent action needs to be taken to stop that process. The cooperation is challenging, but we need to keep in mind the urgency of tackling the climate change. Just finally then, a question I wanted to put to you specifically, because I understand that earlier in your career you did serve in Moscow, so you've seen that relationship up close. Do you think it can be repaired to anywhere near the different relationship Finland used to have with Russia before Finland joined NATO. Finland very much forged its own path in its relationship with its neighbour. Has that gone entirely, do you think? There's not much left of it now. Whether there's a chance to repair some of that in the future, that is probably so far in the future that, I mean, I, I can't see it now, unfortunately. I've sort of in one way or the other, I've spent most of my career on matters that relate to the Russian Federation. So, of course, it makes me sad, the situation where we are now. But it's, this is not our fault. It's Russia that attacked a sovereign nation and is killing innocent civilians there. The whole international community has condemned that. That is not right. That's dangerous. That's a threat to the European security order. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how long this will take. Um, I don't see any change in the near future. That was Petteri Vurimaki, Finland's ambassador for Arctic Affairs. Do stay with us.
You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Our next guest is James Gray, a British politician who has served as the Conservative Member of Parliament for North Wiltshire since 1997. He is also chair of the all-party parliamentary group for the Polar Regions. I began by asking James Gray whether the UK's interest in the Arctic has shifted since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, the dynamic's changing anyhow. Britain, I think, in our view, has been ignoring the Arctic for many, many years to a significant degree. Very close relationship with the Antarctic, but despite the fact that the Shetland Islands are only 400 miles away from the Arctic Circle, we have nonetheless been tending to ignore it. And I think that's changing. I think that the Foreign Office produced a report earlier this year. We've just produced our Environmental Audit Committee report on the subject. And in a whole variety of other ways, I'm detecting quite a significant change. Now, your question as to whether or not that's linked to Ukraine is an interesting one, because, of course, the Ukraine connection means that the Arctic Council is no longer operative, or at least I got myself into trouble by saying that. It, it is operating, albeit not in the way that it should be. Now, I take the view, and I think many of the Arctic Council countries would disagree, I take the view this is an opportunity for Britain to do significantly more in the Arctic. We've got a huge amount to contribute to the Arctic and a huge amount to gain from it. And I think the change in the Arctic Council, in my view, its disappearance, although that's controversial, should give us the opportunity to be much more involved in the infrastructure of the government of the Arctic. If you had to explain to your own constituents or the British public more widely what the importance of the Arctic to the UK is, how would you characterise it? Well, a whole variety of things. First of all, we have a huge amount to gain from the Arctic. We have fisheries, we have minerals, oil, although that's controversial. We have tourism, very large quantity of tourism, huge tourist ships coming up here. So we have an enormous amount to gain from the Arctic and also an enormous amount to contribute to it. I mean, we, we are the fourth biggest scientific nation in the world. Something like 10% of all the university papers that are produced come from Great Britain. So we make a huge contribution. And things like shipping, uh, the City of London, the Baltic Exchange, Lloyds, all these things are great contributions that we make to the Arctic. So we give a lot back. As to what it affects the, my constituents in North Wiltshire, well, they're not near the coast. <laughs> and therefore, I'm very glad to say that the Climate Change Committee, who came out the other day and said that 1.8 million houses would be flooded in the UK by the year 2080, that's very serious. And there are towns already marked off in Wales, which will have to be abandoned. Today, we've seen the town of Brechin in Scotland being evacuated because of a big storm. Now, I think we're going to see far more of that kind of extreme weather condition as a result of the Arctic ice melting, flooding, extreme weather, storms, and a whole variety of equally concerning environmental conditions which do affect people in their ordinary lives. You've recently suggested, I think, your view that the UK should appoint a a polar envoy, somebody whose job this is presumably full-time. What would the role actually entail as you see it? Well, I think part of our sort of dumbing down our interest in the Arctic comes to the fact that no one person has any responsibility for it. My committee looked into this and we discovered there are five ministers with responsibility for the Arctic from the different departments, from the Foreign Office and DEFRA and the MOD and so on and so forth. Those five ministers have never met. Now, it's extraordinary. Britain does not have a governmental organisation that looks after the Arctic. The current minister for the Arctic is actually the minister for the Caribbean. Uh, David Rutley, a very nice chap, but he is the Minister for the Caribbean. He knows nothing about the Arctic. We asked him to come and give evidence to our committee. He was too busy. Now, I just think that we're actually, we haven't got the governmental structures to look after our interests in the Arctic. And having some kind of appointment, whether it be a, an ambassador or whether it be an envoy, is a matter of debate. Just on my way to the studio this afternoon, I bumped into a chap and said, what are you? And he said, I'm the Icelandic ambassador to the Arctic. 
The EU is talking about having one. France has got one. Germany is considering the matter. Other places like Korea have got one. I just think that having an official or a person, maybe a politico, who knows, who has an, a sole responsibility and interest in Britain's relations with the Arctic, has huge amount to recommend it. Do you find yourself, it's just a thing that always occurs to me when we talk to Scandinavian Nordic politicians, and it's certainly occurred to us in the time we've been here already, that it is a very different political culture that perhaps more rancorous polities could learn something from? It's been an area of peace and stability, and they've all got on with each other, and they, it's been great for many, many, many years, decades. That, of course, is now ending because of Ukraine, and we're finding a significantly increased political battle going on here in the Arctic of a variety of kinds. And I think Britain has been a much greater part in that. I think the days when everyone agreed with everybody else, and it was all very nice, and the Arctic Council busied itself with search and rescue was fine. But that's long gone. With Russia rearming, they've built eight brand new bases all the way along the Arctic coast. Most of their submarines are here. Most of their nuclear weapons are here in the Arctic. America's doing something similar. We're doing, Britain's doing something similar. We, we, we've actually started taking an interest in the Arctic after many years being fixated by the hot and dusty Middle East. So the whole thing is changing. And I'm afraid the kind of peaceful, agreeable politics you describe may well not be possible for quite a long time to come. Do you think there is possibly a, a complacency attached to that, which could, if inadvertently, create conditions in which actual conflict could occur in the Arctic? I mean, I hope at least we're a distance from that prospect, but it's not entirely unthinkable, is it? It's not unthinkable at all. I've seen the, the Russian bastion concept, and obviously the big circles they draw on the map, and that circle includes the islands of, of Shetlands. So we are part of the Russian bastion, which they believe to be their territorial waters. The Duma has laid down a law which says that no submarine may go along the northern sea route without surfacing, that all naval ships and merchant ships must have written permission from the Russians. Well, we ain't going to do that. It's only a matter of time before Her Majesty's government sends a, a warship or a submarine through international waters, which Russia claims to be their own. So I think we mustn't be complacent about this. I was up in Kirkenesh not so very long ago and looked across the border into Russia, where I saw a division of Arctic-trained soldiers near Murmansk. And we have a company of Royal Marines who are doing our training in the And we mustn't be complacent about it because the risk of there being some form of flash up here in the Arctic, I think, is quite significant. And you can't foresee these. No one foresaw the tragic events that are occurring in Palestine as we speak. And there could easily be some form of appalling event up here in the Arctic, one kind or another. So we must not be complacent. We must keep our alertness. We must absolutely alert to the risks that are, are here. I mean, just finally then, do we need or do the Arctic countries, though they have been, as you said, traditionally peaceful, need to get used to the idea that this will become a more militarised environment? Well, I think America is already. Canada's beginning to realise it. I think that the Norwegians are, are very militarised and they, they have the, the JAF with us. Of course, Sweden and Finland now joined NATO. So I think people are beginning to realise that there is a, a really significant security risk here in the Arctic. They'll regret it, and they'll try and see it off as long as possible. Uh, but the Norwegians realize how vulnerable they are. Their border with Russia is wide open. There are no wires there. There's no gates. There are no customs offices. It's just a wide open piece of countryside with a red posts in it to designate where the Russian border is. And if the Russians chose to invade Norway to get to the Atlantic, there'd be absolutely no problem, nothing to stop them at all. So we must be aware of the risks, the military risks here in the Arctic. Ignoring them is wrong. Let's hope nothing happens. But nonetheless, we have to be acutely aware of the risk. That was the British MP James Gray speaking to us at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. 
Our next guest is Anu Lamanen, Finland's ambassador to Iceland. I began by noting the recent passing of former Finnish president and Nobel Peace laureate Marti Atasari, and I asked if he still serves as something of a beacon for Finnish diplomats generally. Well, absolutely, I think, yes, it was. He had a very exceptional career, and beginning as a normal diplomat, civil servant, and ending up as president and a global peacemaker in a way that he had this exclusive and unique ability to create networks and talk with people and be social with whoever and build bridges. And so I think, yeah, we could all learn a lot from that in this profession, absolutely. But do you see in his career, I guess, a peculiarly finished style of diplomacy. Is is there an approach you think Finns bring to bear on diplomacy that maybe other countries don't? No, maybe not. I think it's a question of rather that he had this personality. He had this exceptional ability to, you know, Finns usually people think that we are silent (laughs) and serious and that's about it. But Atisari had a very unique way of uh, of uh, handling people, not handling, but talking to them and coming to solutions. But at the same time, I think he had a little bit of finishedness in being stubborn. (laughs) He didn't give up. He said, no, we will sit here until we find a solution. And usually he did. So I think that was the Finnish part, yes. In your current role as as Finland's ambassador to Iceland, is any amount of that kind of hard-headedness ever necessary? I'm just wondering how much your two countries actually disagree on. Well, Finland and Iceland, we don't disagree on anything. (laughs) I think we are the best of friends and in the Nordic family, it's especially tight. I think also because, you know, Iceland, Finland, we are a little bit on the edges of the Nordic Mm. area. And we both have a little bit of peculiar language. So I think we we are even more, we feel the brotherhood or the sisterhood of two countries up here in the north. So we have very excellent relations. So what kind of issues do cross your desk then? We have a lot of uh, Nordic cooperation. You know, like this year, Iceland is the chair of the Nordic Council of Ministers. We have ministers coming and going and a lot of people from cities, from friendship organizations, from businesses... So it's maybe the fact that we don't have uh, heavy political issues that would be burdening the embassy. We can happily organize these contacts and meetings, and they are very intensive. And that happens very often. So we are very happy to do that kind of work, to keep Iceland and Finland very tightly connected. Are you yet seeing any uptick in defence cooperation, given that Finland has, in the last year or so, joined Iceland in NATO? Well, the NORDEFCO cooperation uh, framework has been created some years ago and Iceland not having a military and not having defense forces or things like that has been a little bit maybe just watching but they have in the last years particularly after the situation in Europe of course with the war in Ukraine and so forth activated also themselves and at the same time Finland and hopefully Sweden very soon as a new member of NATO, is finding and creating new ways of cooperation in a sense that the Nordic countries can bring in more added value. And that does not mean that we would have a Nordic alliance or a a defense pact within the alliance, within NATO. No, that means finding all the strengths that we have together to be able to give more to the alliance as a group of countries. And I think we are on a very good path there. Of course, we became members 4th of April this year. So it's starting now and building on all the cooperation that we did earlier. And that was also quite a lot. 
But within the specific context of the Arctic, there is a change in dynamic. Finland joining NATO, Sweden will presumably join NATO, which means pretty much everybody who directly abuts the Arctic is now a NATO member apart from Russia. Are you concerned that there's an inevitability that the Arctic becomes a necessarily adversarial arena? No, I don't think so. You know, the old saying about, you know, high north, low tension is uh, still very important. And it still is a fact, I think, that uh, we should all uh, take care that there will not be any more tensions within the Arctic area. There are so many important things to tackle particularly climate change, environmental issues, issues that concern the indigenous peoples and all the research and all the innovations that we can bring into finding solutions in the Arctic. So no, I think no tensions. So just finally then, if you think ahead to the new year and to phrase this in excruciatingly Arctic terminology, would you be anticipating more of a thaw than a freeze perhaps or a further thawing? The issue is, of course, here that the main body who works with Arctic issues and that is the most important forum for us is still the Arctic Council. And they are currently working on finding ways to advance the work that has been done and that will be done and finding ways of doing this in a manner that, of course, takes into account the situation that we have, but still maintaining a clear sight on all the goals that the Council has had all these years and finding a way forward to create and continue the cooperation that the countries around the Arctic do have. And I think that is very important, and we want to support that very much. And as the president of Finland has very often said, and I I fully agree that uh, if we lose the Arctic, we lose the globe. And that's a wisdom I think that we should all uh, keep very clear in our in our minds and continue the cooperation that uh, we can build on that also for the future. That was Anu Lamanen, Finland's ambassador to Iceland. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our final guest today is Dr. Volker Raschold, head of the German Arctic office at the Alfred Wegener Institute, a German national polar institute which works largely in the field of natural sciences. I began by asking whether the governments of the Arctic countries are generally pretty good at listening to scientists. I think so. Yeah, I think so. This is what actually my, my job is about in, in Germany. So I'm heading the German Arctic office, which is yeah. an office which sits between science and politics. So and our main work or our main task is to bring our science to the policymakers within Germany. And at the same time, of course, also bring questions from policymakers back into science so that scientists can address these questions. So, uh, so building this dialogue between science and policy, I think, is very important. And I think it works quite well in Germany. I mean, what what have you learned, though, about bridging that gap, which I know infuriates scientists in particular dealing with climate change, that this is obviously an extremely long-term concern, where it is the nature of politicians that they tend to think fairly short-term, like not much beyond the next election? No, of course. I mean, if you talk about the, the climate issue, of course, we are working on that since decades, and we are telling our politicians since decades what's happening. And you see that the response from policy is very slow, of course. I mean, we have the Paris Agreement, which I think was the breakthrough. On the other hand, we see how well it is or not so well it is implemented and what's happening. So we are still continuing to destroy the climate. And there is a lot of work to do for scientists to better communicate to policymakers. I think we are doing this pretty well already, but still um, there's always people in politics who have other issues on their agenda. 
Do you think politicians underestimate how receptive the public is, though, to being told what might actually end up being quite hard, expensive and difficult truths about what they have to do? Because just thinking, especially in Germany in the last 18 months, what we've seen in terms of a screeching 180 degree reverse in decades of energy policy, not necessarily related to climate change. That was a political decision for political reasons. But it does suggest that you can take the public along, doesn't it? I think people were surprised how well that worked, actually. You're absolutely right. Changing the energy sources that we had, which were really very much focused on Russia, to others. And it worked surprisingly well. And I think it's a good point because that shows that it's possible, actually, if you want to do it and if you have good arguments for doing that. And there the argument was strong enough to convince everyone that this is something we have to do. I mean, in the public, we also had resistance, of course. We still do that. So we have a rising number of people who are not supportive of that and who think we should go back to energy from Russia. But still, the majority and in the politics, I think we have the, the backup. It's still there. I just want to ask finally, if you think ahead to 2024 and to the Arctic, is there one thing more than any other that worries you and your institution? Is there a particular concern that looms among all others? I mean, of course, the war in the Ukraine, the Russian aggression in the Ukraine, of course, changed things in the Arctic completely. I mean, the Arctic was always seen as a, an area of cooperation and dialogue and fruitful dialogue, and that's gone. I mean, of course, that's an issue also for science, because in my country, and I think most other Western countries have the same, we completely stopped the cooperation with Russian institutions. So it's frozen, it's still frozen, and it will be frozen, I'm pretty sure, for a couple of years we have individual contacts between scientists, but that's about it. But that, of course, also means that we don't have access to the Russian Arctic. We don't have access to the data from the Russian Arctic that we certainly need if we want to study the Arctic as a whole. And if we want to do, for example, modeling studies of the whole Arctic, we need data from all around the Arctic and not only from half of it. And that is, of course, a concern for science. Maybe I'll just give you one example on things that I have been working on many, many years ago, and that's permafrost. For example, for permafrost, you have a network of boreholes around the Arctic, of course, many of them in Russia. And in these boreholes, we measure temperatures since decades in some cases. And that's, of course, very important for a model to predict what permafrost will do in the future. And now, of course, half of these boreholes are in Russia, and we don't really get access to the data anymore. They are still monitored. I'm sure the Russians do. And some people have personal contacts and have access to the data. But there's no really official way of really bringing and integrating these data into one system. And that's, of course, serious example, a serious gap that we see, and a good example of what it means. That was Dr. Volker Raschold speaking to the Foreign Desk at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. That's it for this episode of the Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for the Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces the Foreign Desk Explainer. Thanks also to Matilda Raffinsdottir and all the team at the Arctic Circle Assembly. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.